We're looking this morning, and if you will please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue in our series in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, and our text is verses 5 to 11 that was read for us by Seth. And if you'd like to follow along, you can find the text at the bottom of your take notes section in your bulletin, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. And we're looking this morning at a heavenly mind for right earthly living, a heavenly mind for right earthly living. Because from the beginning of history, people have been dreaming up these utopias where earthly living would be just right. They've tried to create such places, but they've always failed because people who have tried to create such places have only had a horizontal kind of outlook, looking to their own minds and looking around, not ever looking vertically, not ever looking up. Now, for example, if you think of history, I think of rulers in ancient Greek or uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome um, who tried to build empires and kingdoms that would outlast time. I think closer to our own times of dictators and rulers such as Lenin and Mao Zedong. In all of these examples, we find that uh, none of them had a mind that was truly seeking God in heaven for life on earth and for that which lay beyond. But if there was ever a person in history who had his mind set on things above, I think it was Jonathan Edwards, the great American pastor, preacher, theologian. And at age 19, Jonathan Edwards prayed this. He said, oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I don't know what you were praying when you were 19, but I certainly wasn't praying that kind of prayer when I was 19, but Edwards did. And God answered Edwards' prayer when he prayed that, and Jonathan Edwards lived a life in light of eternity to the fullest, leaving a profound impact on this nation that is felt even today. I wonder how much you have thought about, how much thought you have given to your mind being so set on heaven and so set on God in heaven that our lives here on earth are lived to the fullest. You see, the problem with the church in Colossae, the church that Paul is addressing here in the book of Colossians, is that two strains of thinking were seeking to influence their everyday living. Scholars commonly refer to this as the Colossian heresy. On one hand, you had Jewish religious tradition, and on the other hand, you had a certain type of philosophical elitism. The Jewish traditionalists said this. They said, observe circumcision, observe religious ceremonies, and the keeping of times and days, etc. And the philosophers who were seeking to get uh, into the Colossian church were from the pre-Gnostic camp, that is, before Gnosticism set in, And they were telling the Colossian believers that there was some kind of special wisdom that was yet to be attained and that these Colossian believers had to strive in order to attain this wisdom. And oh, by the way, this wisdom, attaining this wisdom, um, has to do with worshiping angels. You have to worship angels in order to get this kind of wisdom. The assault in Colossae 
was made on the Christian's mind so as to influence their living. And you know, it's very interesting as you read Paul's letter to these Colossians, the word understanding occurs two times. The word mind occurs three times. The word wisdom, six times. And the word knowledge, five times. So you have 16 times in total across these four chapters that a reference is made to a category of the thought life. And as they sought to think in such a way that benefited their living in this world, the world and the devil sought to intercept them with erroneous philosophies. So that's why God has Paul writing to them. And Paul writes to caution them, to correct them, and to comfort these Colossian believers. For example, he says in 1.9, he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all manner of spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, do you see how Paul had in view the connection between their minds being set on the Lord and their living, that is their walk, being worthy of the Lord? Do you see that connection there? That's why also in last week's passage that Pastor Best taught on, Paul wrote at the beginning of chapter 3, which we read, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. See, the only problem is, though, that we live on the earth. And very often, our minds are earthbound. We cannot think beyond planet earth. You've also probably heard it said that um, when someone is so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. You've heard that phrase or some similar adage. Actually, we'll find that those who are most heavenly minded are of the most earthly good. Now, you may disagree with me, but certainly you're not going to disagree with C.S. Lewis because <laughs> this is what he had to say. Lewis said this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this, end quote. So then, in light of the first four verses of Colossians 3, the question that emerges from our text this morning, verses 5 to 11, is this. Since our minds are set on things above, and Christ will soon return to take us above to be with him, how are we to live now here below until then? That's the question. Since our minds are set on things above, and Christ will soon return to take us above, how are we to live here below until then? I want us to notice from our text three practices for heavenly living on earth. Three practices for heavenly living on earth. And the first of these is killing the old man constantly. Killing the old man constantly. The Bible says in verse 5 of Colossians 3, put to death therefore your members which are upon the earth. 
Therefore, in light of the fact that your mind is set on heavenly things, in light of the fact that Christ will soon appear and you will appear with him, since you are looking vertically and thinking heavenly, now he says, be concerned with horizontal living on the earth. Looking above to God while living below. This combination, my friends, is the secret to living that all of the life coaches and the gurus out there are missing every day. It's the biblical, God-ordained way for right living. And it's not just germane to Colossians, to the letter of Colossians that we're reading, but you find it across the entire Bible. In fact, the Old Testament is full of examples of vertical looking but horizontal living. Many examples can be quoted. I think, for example, of Psalm chapter 8, in which David says, he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, that is vertical looking. And then he says, here is horizontal looking or living. He says, what is man? He looks down and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you should visit him? And so we find here Paul, the apostle, with that Hebrew heritage in mind and with his colossal God-given intellect, he addresses the Colossian church, the Gentile Colossian church, and tells them that the philosophy for right Christian living is found by looking up Godward. So in light of the fact that their minds were to be set on heavenly things, what's the command that he gives them? He says, put to death. Kill your members which are upon the earth. Now, by the way, in case you're wondering, and I know some of you are as you're seated in your seat this morning, he by members does not mean church members. So don't worry about that. But by members, he means not just our hands, not just our feet and our eyes and our ears, but he means this. Listen carefully. He means those things on earth that by a heavenly standard, if we were to participate in them, make us worthy of being put to death. He means starve and kill those instead of letting those kill you. Starve and kill those sinful activities that the members of our physical bodies on earth have a natural proclivity to participate in. Starve them, kill them. First of all, he says in verse 5, continuing sexual immorality of all kinds, which was, by the way, common, prevalent, acceptable in that Greco-Roman milieu that Paul was uh, writing in. Sexual immorality, both of the heterosexual and of the homosexual kinds. Any sexual activity, in fact, outside the boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Kill it, he says. Why? Because it leads to the next sin on the list, impurity. An uncleanness in the sight of God because of sexual immorality. And if we persist in this impurity, without being purified by God, it leads to a passion. Not a passion for purity, but a passion for more impurity. So that all of our desire then becomes what he calls evil desire. Evil desire. All of our desire is evil if we don't go to God with it. And then we begin to covet 
we become greedy for things. We become greedy for people that have nothing to do with us and do not belong to us. Covetousness. All of this, Paul says, the sum of it, it adds up to idolatry, which is a full turning away from God, never looking upward, only looking inward, and then looking around. And so what you have is the idols in our age of sex and of money and of power. People worship and are bound by them and have no freedom from these idols, idolatry. That's why Paul is so strong with the language that he uses here and says, kill these sins and kill our appetite to participate in them. Why kill them, you say? Well, the Puritan writer, John Owen, had something very wise to say. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If we don't make every effort to kill these sins, they master us and we have hellish living on earth instead of heavenly living on earth. Why kill these sins? Ultimately, because these sins and a host of other sins were laid on the Holy Son of God and the Holy One of Heaven was crucified and killed on our behalf because these sins were laid on Him. Sin cost Christ His very life and He had to lay it down. And that's a good enough reason in my estimation for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be killing sin because it killed him. Which of these sins, I wonder, on this list do we need to, do you need to kill today? Paul continues in verse 6. He says, on account of these, that is, on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Now, it's interesting that some New Testament manuscripts, including the one that the ESV is translated out of, do not have the phrase, the children of disobedience following the wrath of God is coming. And I think it's very important for that phrase, if not to be inserted in the translation, at least for us to understand that phrase, that the children of disobedience, that the wrath of God falls on the children of disobedience. Because while the wrath of God falls on the whole world, we have to understand that those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are the children of God, we are not the objects of God's wrath because in Christ there was propitiation made for us. That is, he has covered us from the wrath of God. He has made a provision for us. And, and so the wrath of God does not fall on us. We do receive God's righteous anger as correction as his children. Yes, that's true. But the punitive wrath of God falls on those who are disobedient to God and who reject his son, Jesus Christ. And then we find the need for us to constantly kill this old man of sin is also motivated by the fact that we are now, we have become the children of obedience, though once we were not the children of obedience. Paul says, and in them you also once walked when you were living among them. We walked among, we were one with the children of disobedience, and we may have even committed some of the specific sins that are listed here. We may have. And if we didn't commit the specific sins that are listed here, all of us have certainly committed the sum of all of these sins, which is idolatry. 
All of us have committed idolatry. We've turned away from God. But it is in the past for the Christian, all of this. But now, he continues, you yourselves are to put off all these. To put off all these. Not just the sins that are listed above, but the sins that are to follow as well. Of which the first, he says in verse 8, is anger. Anger. How many of us are angry here regularly? And this is not an anger that is a righteous anger based on the mind of God. But this is an anger he's talking about by human standards, which if unchecked, goes to the next level of wrath or furious, uncontrolled outbursts. And then it expresses itself in malice. Malice. When you wish harm on somebody you hate or you dislike, malice. And then he says that there's blasphemy or slander. You look to tear down someone's reputation or persona. And this we do to fellow human beings. But blasphemy finds its ultimate expression against God himself. When a person shows his fist to God and defies God, blasphemy. And it comes through the means, Paul says, of filthy language out of your mouth. Filthy language out of your mouth, which is to be done away with completely. None of these vices befit the Christian who has a mind that is set on heaven where Christ is. So throw out the swear words, Paul says, but it's not enough just to throw out the swear words. He also says, don't lie. He commands, don't lie to one another. Christian, for us to lie to one another within the body of Christ is sin. Our standard should be and is speaking the truth to one another in love and leaving the consequences in God's hands as we do that courageously. Yes, there is supposed to be wisdom. Yes, there is supposed to be dis discretion. But there's never supposed to be the political correctness of the culture or, or the deception and twisting of things when we communicate with each other. No word games, no spin for a mind that is set on God in heaven. But the truth in love, don't lie to one another. And we will love each other well by speaking the truth to each other in love, humbly and gently with care and concern for one another. Then another reason to continually kill sin found here is in the second part of verse 9. He says, because you have put off the old man with its practices. You've put off the old man. Now, when did this happen? If you're a Christian, you're asking the question, when did this happen to you? How was the old man put off? Well, it happened the moment you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he raised you from death to life. Now, if you've never believed on Jesus Christ for new life, then you have not put off the old man. You are living in the physical body, but you are dead in your spirit. You are one among the walking dead if you have not put off the old man. Paul explained earlier in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, he explained this when he said that the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh happens through faith that is believing in the working of God through Jesus Christ. So the moment you were raised to new life in Christ, the old man was put off. 
So you're asking as you sit here as a Christian, you're saying, do I have to still keep putting off the old man even though it was already put off at conversion? Do I have to keep doing that? And the answer is yes. Because even new clothes get dirty and need to be washed until such a time as there is no more dirt in the world. New clothes still need to go into your washing machine, don't they? Even nature teaches us that once something is born, it still has to be renewed, and in order to be renewed, it has to keep putting off and putting on to stay alive. We see this in the world of cats and dogs. Some of you have pets, and you know that your cat or your dog regularly sheds uh, its coat from time to time and uh, puts on a new one. We see it in the world of birds, where the eagle, for example, has to put off some of its old feathers, and uh, it grows new ones so that it can keep flying high. But I think, and some of you may not like this, so uh, just uh, a caution here, snakes, the world of snakes, uh, you, you find that it's just interesting, it may be creepy, but it's interesting. In the world of snakes, some snakes put off the entire coat of skin, and they leave the entire thing behind, because over time, scientists say, parasites get attached to that uh, coat of skin, and so they have to leave the whole thing behind and emerge new. And we find that the parasites of sin have the tendency to attach to the new man, even though it's a new man. The parasites of sin keep attaching themselves to us, and they have to be discarded from time to time. The old habits need to be constantly killed the good news this morning is that as Christians, you and I have the power to kill the old man. We have that power given to us. I wonder how it's going for you this morning as far as killing the old man goes and putting it off, putting sin off goes. For those of us who are in Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sin. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, he said, if you live by the Spirit, if you by the Spirit, excuse me, put to death the deeds of the body, he said, you will live by the Holy Spirit. Are we asking for and are we submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit to constantly kill sin? But not just the Spirit, God has also given to us His Word by which we are to kill sin. In Psalm 119, the psalmist said, Your Word have I hid in my heart that I what? That I might not sin against you. He's given us His Spirit and He's given us the Word of God by which to kill sin. And with that, we have all we need to be killing the old man. And then there's a second practice for heavenly living on earth. And that is clothing ourselves with the new man consistently. Clothing ourselves with the new man consistently. Continuing on from verse 9, Paul says, Since you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new man. And I wonder, is there anybody better than the Apostle Paul to talk about putting off the old man and putting on the new? Think about it. Paul, who is writing this letter, here is a man who goes from one day persecuting and killing Christians, putting them in prison, blaspheming the name of the God that they worshipped, 
And the next day, what happens to this man? He's completely transformed. He's a new man. He's ready to die for the faith. And he's sitting here in a prison, writing this letter to the Colossians, telling them to put off the new ma uh, old man and put on the new man. And you would think that this guy is out of his mind if he really didn't see some real inner transformation. But this is a man who speaks out of deep experience. It has happened to him. And for those of us who are in Christ, you and I have put on the new man. It is a present reality. But the issue, of course, is that it comes to clothing ourselves consistently with this new man. Because notice what he says about the new man. He says this new man is renewed in knowledge. The new man is put on by consistent renewal in knowledge. Knowledge. That which the Jewish traditionalists and the pre-Gnostic elitist philosophers were trying to convince the Colossian believers that they needed more of. Each camp was saying to them, oh, listen to us. We have the corner on knowledge. Tell, listen to what we have to tell you. We have true knowledge. Not so, God says through Paul. Yes, the new man is renewed in knowledge, but that true knowledge is according, he says, to the image of him who created him. That is the image of Jesus Christ who created the new man. Meaning the blueprint for who we are becoming as new people is found in the one who created the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his image that we are being made into. And the more knowledge we have of Jesus, the more we will be made into his image. But suppose Paul gave them only that much instruction. I think he would have left these Colossians in quite the conundrum. Because how would they get more knowledge of Jesus so that their new man was renewed into his image? How were they supposed to go about it? Because after all, you think about it, if it's about being renewed in the image of Christ, God could have simply plopped down a high resolution, high definition image of Jesus for us to renew ourselves by constantly looking at that image and becoming more like him. But he didn't choose to do that. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't come in the age of photography? Have you ever thought about that? Why did he choose to come when there were no photographs and there was uh, no images to be saved onto your hard drive? Or why didn't God just leave a genetic clone of Jesus on earth? I mean, after all, Jesus did come in the flesh, right? So God uh, could have allowed for Jesus to be cloned and the bodily clone of Jesus could have been left here on earth for us to imitate and become more like Jesus. But God didn't choose for us to be conformed to the image of Christ through photographs or through clones, no. God's design for us to be conformed into the image of Christ is through the word of Christ. That's why if you look in chapter three and in verse 16, and uh, Pastor Larry, I don't mean to jump ahead into your sermon two weeks from, from now, but he says in verse 16 of chapter excuse me, verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. It's through the word of Christ, hear me, 
entering our minds and dwelling richly in our hearts that our new nature is brought nearer and nearer in likeness to the image of Christ, through the word of Christ. And this connection between word and image that Paul brings out here, and the connection between word and image in our culture at large is vitally important for us as Christians to understand if we wish to become more and more like Jesus. Now, images in our culture are ubiquitous. Ours is an image-saturated culture. All you have to do is go and stand in Times Square, New York, and you find yourself there in Times Square surrounded by images on screens that are larger than the walls of this church. And I mean, all around you, all you see is images, images, images. Some people can't live a single day without posting multiple images to social media. And photography is a wonderful thing because the good thing about photographs and images is that they help us to capture memories, don't they? They help us to look back and reflect on the past, on precious memories. But the point I'm trying to make here is, and please hear me carefully, is that if images are exalted above words, if images are exalted above words, it results in the dumbing down of our capacity to use words. We become a visually driven people instead of a word-based people. What we see and feel becomes the norm instead of what is written. And if images become the standard, the question then is, how is the new man to be renewed? Because Jesus gave us his word by which to be renewed. He didn't give us images. And uh, if, as parents, you're uh, wanting to look more closely at this subject, especially in the lives of your children, I uh, have a book that I would like to suggest for you. It's called The Vanishing Word, The Vanishing Word, The Veneration of Visual Imagery in Postmodern Times by Arthur Hunt. And I would commend that to you because it goes deeper into this issue in our society and the importance of the word, especially the word of God. But you say, how does all of this work practically though? How are we to renew ourselves with the word consistently and put on the new man? How does it work? Well, I go back to my childhood and when I was a toddler who was incapable of taking off a dirty shirt, what I would do is I would go to my parents for help. Uh, actually, they would come to me. And they would say, the first thing they would say is, uh, you'll probably guess it, put your hands up, right? Anybody else here have that experience? Thank you. Put your hands up, and then off would come the old shirt. And then when I thought I was done and I was running over, they would say, no, 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 come back here. Put your hands up again. And then on would come the clean shirt. Every day, you and I, as children of God and of the Heavenly Father, with the new man needing to be renewed, are to come to him, are to lift our hands up to the heavens, to open his word and say, Oh God, renew me. Allow him to renew you with the word of Christ. Are you being renewed in knowledge? which comes from his word according to the image of the one who created you as a new person in Christ. Christian, if you need renewal, if you need to be refreshed, here is the mirror 
that will show you the image you are to become like. And thirdly, we find, and lastly, this third heavenly, uh, this third practice for heavenly living on earth. Considering ourselves one with every man in Christ. If indeed we are killing the old man and clothing ourselves with the new man, then a great blessing becomes available to us. Because our minds are heavenly while we live on earth, we begin to see every person who is in Christ as one in Christ with us. Speaking of the image of Christ according to which we are being conformed, Paul writes in verse 11, here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now in Christ, the lines of differences between ethnic groups, that is between Greek and Jew, the lines of differences between religious and irreligious groups, that is between circumcision and uncircumcision, the lines of difference between civilized and uncivilized groups, barbarians and Scythians, the lines of difference between social and socioeconomic groups, that is between slave or free, all of these lines of difference in Christ get obliterated completely. Now notice that I said lines of difference, not lines of distinction. Because yes, we retain some of our distinct features that make us who we are, but all of those major differences that kept us from God and all of those major differences that kept us and keep us from each other are removed in Christ. They're completely done away with. Why? Because he says, Christ is all and in all. That's why. Done away with completely. And you know, by the way, that phrase, in all, those two words, it speaks to the preeminence of Christ. And in all is the theme of the letter of Colossians in a nutshell, in all. Colossians is not a letter primarily about unity. It is a letter primarily about the preeminence of Christ in all things. Unity is a byproduct of all people who are in Christ exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not to seek unity for the sake of unity, no. Rather, we are to allow, we are to let Christ be all in all. His name, his purposes, his plans, his kingdom, his word, his spirit, his glory. We are to focus on all of these things and then as a result, if all of us in Christ are focusing on all of these things and exalting Christ, then unity is sure to follow. We don't have to worry about it. It is when Christ is not just eminent, but preeminent in our lives that the blessings begin to flow. And if you have Christ, you have all the benefits that we have touched on here today. But without Jesus Christ being preeminent, you have none of them. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you've believed on him, do you have all of Christ? Rather, should I say, does he have all of you? Does he have all of me? Is Christ your all in all? 
And if he truly is your all in all, then one of the marks of this is the ability to see beyond the lines of difference that separate Christians. You know, we're so blessed here at the Moody Church to have people from over 70 different nations represented who worship with here, worship with us here. And you saw that represented so well in our mem- new members' lineup this morning. And what a blessing that is to have people from every different nation here with us. It's wonderful. But it wasn't always so. Suppose you came here in the 1960s. Uh, sadly, uh, African Americans would attend, but were not our African American brothers and sisters were not admitted to membership even at the Moody Church. But the Lord used the collective efforts of senior pastors such as uh, Alan Redpath and George Sweeting who followed him to make this verse that we're dwelling on this morning a living reality in this church so that today uh, and in, in that day and, and today, not only were African Americans uh, admitted into membership, but people from every nation. That opened the door for people to come from every nation. Why did that happen in the days of Red Path and Sweeting? Because they recognized Christ to be all and in all, and they saw Christians as one in him. And I wonder, about 50 years removed from that time, as an individual, and I know this is true, but we have to check, as an individual and as a church collectively, do we, and I believe we do, but do we recognize Christ as our all in all? Consequently, do we see ourselves as one with every man, woman, boy, girl who is in Christ? It was William Dunkerley who wrote the words to the well-known hymn, In Christ, There Is No East or West. And writing about this in his hymn, Dunkerley said, Join hands then, members of the faith, whatever your race may be. Whoever serves my father as his child is surely kin to me. In Christ, now meet both East and West. In him, meet North and South. All Christly souls are one in him throughout the whole wide earth. May it ever be so for all of us here, for you and for me. We ask the question, since our minds are set on things above and Christ will soon take us to live above, how are we to live here below until then? And we found from our text three practices for heavenly living on earth, killing the old man constantly, clothing ourselves with the new man consistently, considering ourselves one with every man in Christ. And you know, the only reason we are able to have a heavenly mind while living on the earth is because Jesus himself left the glories of heaven and came down to earth becoming a human being. He came to die on the cross so that when you believe on him, Your sins are forgiven because of the blood of Christ, which was the payment for our sins. And as a result, when you believe on him, your old man is put off and you are given a new nature, which we've been talking about here this morning, a new man. And you know, it's the cross of Christ that connects heaven and earth to give us, as Jesus hung there on the cross, he hung high with his arms stretched out wide, to give us vertical access to God and to give us horizontal unity with each other. 
And if you have never turned to Christ fully, to believe on Christ alone, I invite you this morning, forsake all other ways and turn your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can give you a mind that receives true wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. A mind that can think about and prepare for heaven while you're living on earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this day for your word, and we pray that you might seal it to our hearts. Don't let any person leave here this morning without doing what you are asking them to do. Again, I think of the person here who has never believed on you. Get a hold of them. And for those of us who are in Christ, continue to let your word come alive in us this week and in the week to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.